Well, it's a joy to be with you all again and to meet some new faces that I don't think we've met before, but also to see many friends in the course of our wanderings and preparation to go to the mission field, one of the places my family, or at least myself and my wife, have been most looking forward to coming back to was you all, to visit with you and to see you again and to enjoy the fellowship that God has given us. We're going to be looking this morning at Psalm 45, but as you're turning there, I want you to think about, just for a moment, what you heard in the Bible lesson. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Can any of the kids remember Genesis 1-1? What does it say? I know the adults can remember it. In the beginning, God created, what did he create? The heavens and the earth. And for you adults, what were the next three words that come in verse 2? And the earth. Isn't that interesting? What we get from that verse, from the beginning of verse 2 through the end of Genesis chapter 1, is God describing what he does in the creation of the earth and how he fills it up with his glory. And that ultimately comes to its fullness in a man and in a woman joined together in sharing the glory of God. But what about the heavens? Why doesn't God tell us about the heavens? You ever thought about this? He doesn't tell us about the creation of heavens, and yet we know that it must be in some way, must it not? It has to be somehow like what he does in the earth. What was the creation of heaven like? We're not given to know that. These are secret things. They belong to the Lord our God. But we know, surely we must know, even from what we read about the earth, that God filled it with all that was necessary for his glory. And what does it look like? There are glimpses, aren't there? And at last, isn't it wonderful how the whole Bible moves from the creation of the earth to the final moment where we get this grand vision of heaven in Revelation, particularly chapters 19 through 22, And what do we see in those last chapters of the Bible? Not a man and a woman, but a marriage, all right, between Christ and his church. And throughout the Bible, there are these moments, these glimpses where it's like the clouds part and the things that we really are not given to know, we begin to taste and we begin to see. And we do that this morning by looking at Psalm 45. And I think it's our custom, isn't it, to stand for the reading of the scriptures? Let's stand and hear the word of God given to us in Psalm 45. To the chief musician upon Shoshenim for the sons of Korah Maskel, a song of loves. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured Into thy lips, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. 
I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Our blessed God, we feel somewhat like Isaiah coming in to that visionary presence of Christ, beholding in the scriptures heavenly things and the worthiness and the beauty and the glory and the holiness of the one before whom even the temple itself, the heavens, must shake. And your servant and all of us together would say with Isaiah, woe to us. Even in the description of such beauty and of such a worthy and a glorious and a holy king, who are we to speak? People of unclean lips who dwell among people of unclean lips. Our eyes have begun by faith to see the king. We ask our father that you would cleanse us from all the distractions, those inward sins of thought that we even fail to recognize, those patterns of life that chronically distort our understanding of Christ and his gospel. Give to us again that gracious invitation, that powerful working by your regenerating spirit, the invitation to come to Jesus. Draw us with the cords of your love. Make us here again. And give to us your peace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please be seated? And now consider with me the word of God from Psalm 45. Now, let the walls and the pulpit and me and my Sunday finery all disappear. And just envision for a moment the scene. You walk out to your mailbox, and there is a piece of mail. And for once, it's not junk mail. It has writing on it. And it's not just writing, it's flowing handwriting of the most beautiful quality. It's a kind of calligraphy, and it's in gold lettering, and it's on the finest paper. And you wonder what this could be. It must be a wedding invitation. And you open it. It is. But it's not simply to any wedding. It is to a royal wedding. Now, some of you, within not too distant memory, can remember perhaps watching a royal wedding or two that have taken place over the last decade. They're rather momentous things, and though we are Americans and we dismiss titles, the fact is that we love these things, don't we? We love nobility. We love glory. We love these things. Just picture if you were there, the excited crowds, the procession in solemnity, the soaring architecture, the garments, the regalia, the ancient symbolism, the music, the glories of it, the radiant bride and the groom and their modest smiles at each other, the echoing pronouncement of marriage. It's glorious, really. It really is glorious. It's beautiful. And if you were to attend such a wedding, I think that would be the memory of a lifetime, wouldn't it? How could you say no to such an invitation? Americans though we be, you probably would not be saying, but I've got something on my schedule in October. <coughs> You'd clear the decks. Maybe buy the tickets. You would be there. You are invited. That's kind of what the psalm is, if you like. It's a kind of wedding invitation as a whole. And you notice how it is a wedding that's in view. There's a kingly husband. There's a princess. She's in her glorious wedding robes. There's a procession. The bride and the groom go together. <coughs> but it is far more awesome and more thrilling and heart-stoppingly beautiful than any wedding you've ever seen or would ever be able to go to even, yes, I dare say, even your own. In fact, it's so beautiful that the sons of Korah, in the way that they speak in the introduction, the song of love, and then verse 1 in particular, describe the scene with, with such an overflow of heart that it really can't be captured except with the very finest of speech. There's a lifting of their voices to sing. With all the skill that they possess, the sons of Korah must cry out about this beautiful wedding. <clears throat> now, this song was almost certainly sung at perhaps a wedding like David's or Solomon's. That's true. 
But it really can't fit any of them. Solomon in his glory can't compare to this, can he? There is a greater beauty that cannot possibly be descriptive of even Solomon. And the scriptures so plainly interpret what is going on for us from Hebrews chapter 1, which directly quote verses 6 and 7. The writer of Hebrews says, of the Son. What Son? The Son of God himself. Of the Son of God. He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Who is the groom? I love what Alec Machir, a commentator, commentator, says about this psalm. He says, this psalm, like all royal psalms, run, runs beyond what any earthly king could be to the longed-for Messiah in whom all the glories are true. This is a wedding invitation to the marriage of the Lamb, King Jesus. And the invitation is so sweet and so potent that you and I are compelled to discard all of our other plans and our distractions, renounce them all, leave them, and follow him to the wedding. Maybe you remember, some of you at least, that children's song, I grew up with it. Who would dare sing this in light of such an invitation? I cannot come to the banquet. Don't bother me now. I've married a wife. I've bought me a cow. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> I have fields and vineyards that cost a pretty sum. Don't bother me now. I cannot come. Infinite joy and delight are held out to you at this wedding. You are called to come. How dare we miss such an invitation, especially because, dear people of God, you're the bride. Don't miss your wedding. All through the scripture, God describes his people, his church, as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's determined to rescue you and me out of the world and bind us to himself, take us out of our condemnation and guilt, remove the guilty sentence. And so every wedding, in a way, think back to Genesis chapter 1 and the joining of Adam and Eve and Genesis 2 as well. Every wedding, every marriage makes us look up and look forward to something better, what's really God's ultimate purpose, that heavenly scene, and this is how Paul speaks of it in Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound, and I am saying, he's speaking about the institution of marriage between a man and a woman, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, hidden away in God's eternal purpose, even right there in the beginning, the formation, the forming of Eve and her bringing to Adam is God's purpose, not simply to establish and uphold marriage between a man and a woman, but a marriage to God himself. And that sort of intimacy and depth of relationship, a beautiful and holy life with God himself in an enduring relationship, God with man, this is what he has always intended. A meeting of your understanding and affections with Jesus forever. And of course, God has taken the initiative and caused this to come about by sending his son into the world, uniting him to our flesh, uniting us to Christ by the spirit through faith so that even now, if you want to call this an engagement period, we can, I suppose. We're not alone and we're not forsaken. We have the strongest assurance that wedding day is coming and he will come and take us to himself that where he is, we forever may be with him. Whether you're married or single, young or old, this is what we wait for, isn't it? That's the invitation. This is the song. So listen. Listen as we walk into the text. Listen and worship. Because that's the design here. Worship. If you're looking for a headline, something to take home with you today, in case you forget everything else, it's this. That the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ draws us to worship him. Now, as we think about weddings, and particularly this heavenly wedding, I think there are some things we need to clear out of the way first. There's a great deal of cynicism about marriage in our day, isn't there? And maybe some of us who have been married for 
more than a few months, have our moments of struggle in marriage. And we find ourselves at times, because of our sinfulness, discontent with our lot. And our hearts may grow hard, and marriage may not seem so effervescent and beautiful as it did back when we loved the story of Cinderella. (laughs) Maybe we can find ourselves disappointed with leaders and rulers, and our enthusiasm is kind of dampened. Meeting a king, what's the big deal with that? I know what men are like. Or maybe we have our own ideas of success and failure, or even a sense of our, whether we feel it, repulsiveness or our attractiveness or worthiness or unworthiness, and our, our hearing and our resolve is weakened and dulled. Do not fall prey to this. Let your heart awaken this morning. You are called to this wedding. It is the most beautiful thing you can possibly imagine. Take all the other beautiful things you've ever seen, put them into a single place, and not one of them can possibly compare with that moment when Jesus and his church are at last one. Even if your heart this morning is a bit too heavy to respond to that, just know this. And this is the kind of groom that you and I have. He's coming to you. That's actually the point of the psalm. All through history, he's been coming. Isn't it striking? The heavenly groom comes in Genesis 3 after they sin, and he's walking in the garden. He's not dismissive. He's not walking away. He comes ever since that first treachery. And so notice, if you like a a first point, considering this, verses 2 through 9, and look for the approach of the beautiful king. The king is coming. That's kind of a movement. That's the, the way the verbs are structured here. There's progression. Jesus is approaching and coming to his church. He's riding out. He's coming near. And so we are meant to drink in his glories. He's unlike anyone else we've ever met, supremely beautiful in every way, in his person, in his victory, in his rule, and in his glory, in his glorious office in particular. Let's think first of his person, the beauty of his person, supremely beautiful. God becoming man. Notice what it says there in verse 2. Thou art fairer than the children of men. You know, in the ancient world, it was an ordinary expectation, and I think it probably is in some way still, that the king would be really attractive and beautiful. And the fact is, we don't tend to elect people who are ugly, do we? (laughs) Although, if you look through the histories and you pay attention to the pictures that have been drawn of kings, not all of them really are that pretty. There were some pretty ugly kings. They can wear the clothes, they can bear the office, but they weren't always beautiful. But not Jesus. Jesus is not just fair, He is incomparably beautiful compared with every other man. And this ought to kind of make us step back and be amazed for just a moment because what is there about Jesus that would be called beautiful? And that's really what I want to dwell on in these first verses. What is so beautiful? When we first really see him coming, coming as the God-man, what do we see? We see him coming and suffering and dying, and he doesn't look beautiful at all. And this is what Isaiah says about him. 53, chapter 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. What's the point of a beautiful king? You're meant to want the king, but Jesus in his coming does not look beautiful and he does not look desirable. So what is there? How can he really ultimately be beautiful in that weakness of his humanity? I think we could probably spend eternity on answering that question. But at least we see in his weakness and his need and his suffering the mirror of our own need. Not because God has any need, but because in love the Lord Jesus took the weight of our sins upon himself. We see in his dying that he reconciles us to God. He frees us to be acceptable again and accepted as the beloved in the beloved. And we actually come to know him for what he was really seen to be on the Mount of Transfiguration, glorious and beautiful. He was transfigured before their eyes. 
full of grace and truth, the only begotten of the Father. And that is one of the most beautiful things about Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 2 again. Grace is poured into thy lips. You may meet a beautiful person and your heart may throb a little bit. Just try talking to them. And you'll find out what's in their heart. They're not that beautiful after all. Friends, it's not only Jesus coming and bearing in his humanity our sins. It's Jesus speaking grace and truth to you and me that makes him so beautiful. The words of life come from Jesus. Who else can speak like this? He is really beautiful and most blessed in every way. Again, there's nothing and there's no one more beautiful than the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can think of all those beautiful things that you put together in one place to compare with Jesus, well, what's the source if it's not Jesus? What's the true reality if not Jesus? Everything that we enjoy, everything we find lovely finds its essence, its reality, is upholding its gift in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If you could just see, if I could just see, what we don't see so well, beyond those earthly sources of our joy, our foolish hearts would be, rather than snared, really freed to see the glorious Christ and be enraptured by him. Listen to how the church in Song of Solomon chapter 5 responds to the loveliness of Christ. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. And how do the others respond? What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Who is like him? No one is like him. He is the beautiful man. I love what Samuel Rutherford says about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Oh, fair sun and fair moon and fair stars and fair flowers and fair roses and fair lilies, but oh, 10,000, thousand times fairer, Lord Jesus. Alas, I have wronged him in making the comparison this way. Oh, black sun and moon. But, oh, fair Lord Jesus, oh, black flowers and black lilies and roses, but, oh, fair, fair, ever fair Lord Jesus, oh, black heaven, but, oh, fair Christ, oh, black angels, but, oh, surpassingly fair Lord Jesus. That's who he is in his person. But as if that were not enough, we have to consider, notice verses 3 through 5, and we'll quickly move through these verses up to, to 9. The beauty of what he does. Jesus is supremely beautiful in his victory. Verse 3 tells us there's this song from the sons of Korah going out. Oh, gird your sword upon your thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride up prosperously, or we might say victoriously, rule over your enemies. It's only right that one so blessed by the living God, so resplendent with the divine majesty would ride out to war and to victory. This is not just the the glory that was seen in transcendent beauty by the apostles. It is particularly his moral perfection that marks him with the radiance of God's own brilliance in all the world. He alone, notice this from verse 4, he alone bears the stamp of truth and meekness and righteousness. There's not a man among us that we'd like to be like this. There is not a man among us who has this stamp as Jesus does. This is the glory of Jesus. Here he is in the beauty of his holiness, King of kings and Lord of lords. We read in Revelation chapter 19, but he must then go to war where the world that is not beautiful. 
and that is filled up with the ugliness of evil and sin. He must go into full attack against all lies, our insistence on control, and the false claims that we make to our self-righteousness. And how again has he done this? Firstly, by dying for us. How has he ridden out in victory with truth and meekness and righteousness by going to the cross and paying the price for a sinful people that we might be reconciled to the living God? These are his awesome deeds of victory. Not carnal weapons, but in the power of the Spirit, Jesus defeats our sin and crushes the head of the serpent. And yes, it's not fully complete, is it? Because here we are gathered recognizing our own sin today and our need of such a Christ. But soon, dear friends, he will come, a mighty king, and he will put death itself to death. What a victory. What a beautiful victory. What a beautiful rule. Ugliness and evil will forever be silenced. The energy of war will be turned into a vibrant peace. He's conquered, and he rides out to conquer. But he is also, as he conquers, supremely beautiful, verses 6 through 7, supremely beautiful in his rule. His kingdom is forever and indestructible. You know, we talk about term limits for a reason, because there are some rules we'd really like to come to an end pretty quickly. (laughs) But this rule you don't ever want to end. And every year you find with fresh amazement the worthiness and the glory, the perfection and the delight of it. Everything Jesus does is without corruption, entirely right, sinless. He is just and true in his government of the nations. A government without corruption. Can you imagine what that would be like? I think that's actually almost impossible for us to think of what that would be like. Can you imagine what it would be like in the home even? If the rule of the home was without corruption, if fathers and mothers were holy, that would probably be a world where the oppressed are lifted up and the hungry are fed and the widows and the orphans are cared for and where the poor in spirit possess riches and those who weep for their sins are everlastingly comforted. Doesn't your heart ache for such a world and such a rule and such beauty? That's the rule of a beautiful king who loves what is right and he hates what is evil. This is, as it were, the badge of merit that sets him apart, the sash of his royalty. He loves righteousness and he hates all iniquity. In this he is set apart from any who have ever ruled. In the very depths of his heart, he is utterly pure. But notice also from the last part of verse 7 through 9, he is supremely beautiful in his office. God's anointed the Messiah, the Christ. Do you catch this? He's anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows, set apart to be our king and our priest and our prophet, and to perform his service with gladness. To rejoice in serving us. That perhaps is the most amazing thing about this all. Notice the beauty and the goodness that surrounds him. It speaks here in verse, oh, what verse? I believe it's verse eight, yep. Out of the ivory palaces. Think of Solomon's palace. Think of Ahab's palace decked with ivory. Where do you get ivory from? Well, you'd get it from an exotic place. Elephants wouldn't be in Israel. You get it from far. That indicates the extent of rule. It extends the, it indicates the extent of power and wealth. Such a beautiful king. And one translation offers that there are in the background the stringed instruments that make the king glad. It's sort of like the, the, the scene of feasting that happens there in Esther 1. My family has just been going through Esther recently. There are the Feast of Ahasuerus in Esther chapter 1. Think of the, the beautiful pavements and the curtains and undoubtedly the music and the wine and the, just the beauty of it all. That's the scene that, sets the, that really sets our hearts in preparation to understand the office of Christ. Anointing. It is significant that he is not only anointed, but particularly, verse 8, with garments that have the most beautiful aroma. Now, if you think about the Old Covenant, you think of others who are anointed as well. You might think perhaps of priests. Certainly you think of kings. But you ought to think of a lover. If you read the Song of Solomon, this is the smell 
of the Song of Solomon. The king coming to his bride, coming in his office as husband, coming to rule with righteousness and love, is the very king of whom we're going to sing shortly. In one setting of Psalm 72, he shall come down like showers upon the fruitful earth and love, joy, hope like flowers spring in his path to birth. This is the aroma of the king. Everywhere he goes, do you notice what it smells like? It smells like spring. It smells like life. It has the most attractive beauty. Why all these mighty acts? Why this office of such a person for the salvation of you, the dear bride of Christ? And there's good reason, isn't there? Why the, Jesus takes center stage. You go to an American wedding. The bride comes down the aisle and everybody stands and all eyes are on the bride. But that's not the case here. Who comes to the bride? Jesus comes to the bride. Jesus comes to his church. He's the one who is so radiantly beautiful that nobody can even imagine his coming and to such a one. Who gets all the attention? The Lord Jesus. What's the point that the sons of Korah are making here as they disclose a vision of what's to come and what Christ has already in part done for us? He's attractive. Worship him. Let's move on quickly to verses 10 through 17. We are called to join, if you like, the recessional of the beautiful king and the beautiful queen. Again, referring to American weddings. If you think about them, you have the bride and the groom at the end of the service walking out together in a kind of recessional in the psalm. You could put it into an American wedding setting. There are four parts. There's a prelude, verse 1, verses 2 through 9. There's a processional, not the bride, but the kingly groom coming in. Then there's the ceremony and the recessional up through verse 15. And finally, if you like, the reception, or at least the afterward, happily ever after. Well, as we come here to verses 10 through 17, I want you to notice, if you like, the ceremony and the recessional. Verse 14, we find the bride being led to the king. Verse 15, there's joy and gladness as they, and the particular object there being led along is not just the groom, but the bride and the groom together being led into the palace of the king. But maybe we're not helped as much as we could be by thinking about American weddings. Let's put this for a moment into a Middle Eastern context. And here I can speak from some experience, though my wife can speak with better authority because she's from the Middle East. In the months that were leading up to our wedding, we did things a little differently and at the wedding day itself. And just imagine what this would have been like. The groom and the groom's father, they come to the home of the bride. There's a deeply joyful gathering of the family. And there has been a sort of plea set forward that the bride would come away and be married to this man. There's a lengthy process involved in that, but finally consent is granted and everything stands in readiness. It's the day of the wedding. And what happens on the day of a Middle Eastern wedding? Well, the groom leaves his residence and he comes to the home of the bride. And there she is, and you notice even the language that's here, although some of it is implicit in the King James Version. Verse 13, the king's daughter is all glorious within. The implication is here. She's in an inner room. She's glorious in the inner room. <coughs> the, bride, the groom comes. There she is in her chamber. She's ready. All decked out. It's the groom who's purchased even the wedding garment for her. She's lavished with his love. A great price was spent on the dress. And she's ready. There's feasting. There's dancing much merrymaking, and then when the groom arrives, just imagine that that amplifies tenfold until the moment when everything comes to a sudden stop because the groom has come to take her away, and everybody knows this. And suddenly a silence descends, and there are some tears, and there's heartache, and there are goodbyes. As the bride says goodbye to her family, she is leaving her family to be joined to this man. 
He longs for her to be with him. He desires her beauty and she honors his request. She submits to his rule. And as they leave, all those tears, suddenly they're dried. And they go to the home of the groom and the dancing and the celebration breaks out as if it had never stopped about a hundredfold. These two belong together. This is what we were really desiring all along. The goodbye gives way to something far better and more desirable. It is impossible really to describe unless you've been to a Middle Eastern wedding, the kind of reverent but wild, beautiful celebration that meets the couple as they're entering in and it outstrips all the glory and the joy that went before and all the dancing and drumming and flutes and everything else. That is a sense of the glory of what's happening here at the end of the psalm. But I want you just for a moment to consider the bride again. Think of who the bride is, the church. It's a shock when you think of it that all this celebration and even this desire, this call and invitation comes to this bride because she is, it would appear from the psalm, a foreigner. She doesn't belong in the courts of Israel. She's to leave her father. She's to leave her family. She is apparently associated with the people of Tyre. <clears throat> she doesn't deserve such honors. But more than that, if we think of the bride of Jesus, who are we really throughout history described to be like? Not a beautiful people, but an adulterous people. A gomer. Think of how Jesus refers to the people of his day. He speaks of them again and again. This evil and adulterous generation. Isn't it true that we are not deserving of such a match? How could we be the ones who don't just receive an invitation? We don't just get invited to come to the wedding and stand on the periphery. We're at the front and the groom gazes upon the bride, the church, and says, you're the one I want out of all the earth. You and Jesus speak so tenderly with such love. This is such a profound mystery, isn't it? He's going to wash and purify his bride with the word, cleanse us of every spot and wrinkle, make us presentable, clothed in the robes of his own righteousness, purchased with his blood, take us to himself, and will he scold you? No. Will he hold against you your history? Other people would, and you and I deserve it, and he will not. There's no begrudging acceptance of the church of Jesus here. Everything that he designs for us, the beauty of holiness, he will accomplish by his love. That's what he's done for us on the cross. That's what he does now, praying for you, ruling all things for your good. This is his objective, that you would stand at last in the beauty of his most desirable holiness. And he will look on the last day and gaze at the beauty of what he has accomplished in his love and he will be satisfied. And there will be no moment at which he says, well, I guess I kind of missed that spot. He will say, this is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh fashioned from the pierced side. Well, the bride is singled out. There's so much more of the beauty of all this that we could consider, but the bride is singled out in her garments. You notice how there isn't a lot said about the, the robes of the king? But the bride, much is spoken of. She has even gold thread through her robes. We had a friend, a Sri Lankan friend, and this was their tradition, that they would make special wedding garments and they would cost thousands, if I'm not remembering wrongly, thousands of dollars because they had gold thread and they were not light garments, but they were beautiful. Imagine the bride coming out into the sunlight and she sparkles. And she is so vividly beautiful because this is the garment that the king has given her. This is what Christ does for his church. Yes, at the center of the church's attention is Jesus. 
because he's conquered the heart of his church and led us out of captivity and degradation, clothed us in his own splendor. But what is the object of Jesus' affection? The church. And he will even bring the church with him into the palace to be seated at his side in a co-rulership. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we will rule angels, we will judge them. Friends, we are sometimes disillusioned with the church, are we not? How can we think little of what Jesus so loves and treasures? Not just an institution, but a people. And you know each other's sins. And if you knew me well enough, you'd know mine too. Just ask my family. But what does Jesus think of his church? Of you? He loves and treasures you like his own bride. And he does that now, and he will do that forever. We just wait and we long for the day when he comes and consummates at last the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Now, Back to Cinderella for a second here. Flashy moments, you know. I think some of you young girls, you think about that princess moment. Maybe some of you who are ladies who have been married for some time, that was kind of what you envisioned coming up to marriage, wasn't it? And then there's the marriage. Well, (laughs) what about the marriage? Do you notice how the psalm ends? The psalm ends not just with a kind of reception statement like you might find at the end of a wedding with various people speaking and offering their gratitude to God and blessings. It ends not only with a blessing, but with the promise of even better things to come. Children, not just children, but princes. Not just princes, but a name, and a name that's remembered forever, a name that is praised forever and ever This is what is said to the groom. Instead of your fathers will be your children. The point here is not that Jesus is somehow going to be usurped down the line, but that his dynasty and his life and his glory will last with his bride forever and ever and ever. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. There's a kind of ellipsis at the end here. Sort of a cliffhanger. What happens next? Don't you want to know? Well, the only way to find out is to be there. You have to receive the invitation. And I've saved perhaps the best part for last. As so often it is in the Psalms, we come to the middle of the Psalm, and there, right in the middle, is the key idea. Notice from verses 10 through 12, there are imperatives. There are the words of invitation. Jesus calling his bride away. Notice what it says. Hear, consider, and listen. This is the first part. Jesus is calling you and me to hear today, to listen to the invitation. Yes, to hear of his beauty, to actually believe that what he said about us is true. I suspect that your heart is like my foolish heart as well. We hear these things and we say, oh, that's wonderful truth. I'm sure it relates to somebody else. No, you need to hear. You must hear. This is an invitation to you, Christ's bride. What objections would you bring against such an invitation? I haven't been good enough. I know what Sunday morning was like. There is no worthy objection when Jesus says, listen up. This is the voice of the bridegroom coming and standing outside of the chamber. Hear. Won't you consider, listen to my suit, come out to me. Push all those objections away. The word of this one is faithful and true. Notice the second part of the invitation. Forget. Forget everything else. Verse verse 9 puts it this way. Forget your own people and thy father's house. Here the bride does what the groom is supposed to do, leave his family and forget everything else, even the dearest connections, the most precious relationships, the most delightful possessions, leave them. Leave them. 
If we have such a surpassingly beautiful and worthy Christ, you will lose nothing by forgetting everything else. You will have him and you will have all. And this is why Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, leave it all, die. Follow me. Not because he says that so that we might sort of feel sorry for ourselves while the Christian life is hard. No! The Christian life may be hard, but look what's ahead of you. What C.S. Lewis puts it this way, I think. There are far better things ahead than any we leave behind. And the third part. Bow. Honor the king. Honor the king. And the king will desire your beauty. Worship him, it says here in the King James Version. Don't just merely accept that this is God's truth. Don't merely hear it. Don't even be willing simply to accept that there are far better things in Christ than anything in this world. Call him Lord. Christ comes to you in his beauty, announces what he is to you, unfolds heaven and the scene to come that you might worship, that you might delight that you might testify to the beauty of his grace. What an invitation. What holds you back? What would keep you? Your own moral perfection, I think we've answered that question, haven't we? What about your guilt? Would that hold you back? That dare not. This is for you. What about our doubts? This is really where most of us in the church struggle, isn't it? Our lack of sight, we want to see. And because we don't see, we doubt. Can Jesus really love me like that? We need to pray for clear sight. And perhaps there's no better way to, and more fitting than to conclude with a statement from a glorious Bach cantata. There are words that are in some hymnals, It's a parable. It's in parallel to the poetry of the parable of the ten virgins. Wake, awake, for night is flying. The watchmen on the heights are crying. Awake, Jerusalem, at last. Midnight hears the welcome voices, and at the thrilling cry rejoices. Come forth, ye virgins. Night is past. The bridegroom comes. Awake. Your lamps with gladness take alleluia, and for his marriage feast prepare, for you must go to meet him there. Let's pray. Oh, gracious triune God, may we find Jesus altogether lovely and sense within us that power of his beauty to make all other things fade. We ask that we would have the clear sight of your children by faith, that we, O Lord, would find all other loves expelled and driven out of our hearts that we might lay hold of Jesus. Oh, our Father, we are blind unless you make us see, but we thank you that Jesus does this. He gives sight to the blind. We pray, our Father, that you would give that sight and that treasuring of Christ and that longing after him that we need. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's conclude by singing. Psalm 72, Selection C, and we'll stand to sing.
blesses you as we part the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and remain with all of you amen let's sing in doxology 106 G Say.